In 2003 is when I graduated from high school, which um, it, it, to me, that sounds like a really, not, like, not, like it wasn't that long ago. And there are kids now in our youth group who were born after 2003, so I do feel uh, my age a little bit. Um, but in 2003, I traded the concrete jungle of Los Angeles for the cornfield-saturated Midwest. Um, and having graduated from high school, I enrolled at Mount Vernon Nazarene University, which is in Mount Vernon, Ohio. Uh, and uh, I remember my family, we, we loaded up the minivan and we began to make the trek out to college uh, in August of 2003. And though I didn't know it, uh, in that first journey uh, east, the 2,300-mile distance between California and Ohio would soon serve as a reminder of the enormous cultural gulf between those two worlds uh, that I would call each of those my home. I remember that first year of college, I learned uh, that there's a huge difference between the suburban West Coast and the rural Midwest. I grew up in one of the largest metropolis areas in the country, and I moved to an area where there are 15,000 people living within a half-hour drive in, in any direction. In California, the ambient noise that I would often hear was provided by traffic, sirens, airplanes flying overhead. In Ohio, the ambient noise was provided by cicadas, thunderstorms, and utter silence. And in California, we have 10-lane highways and freeways that, you know, the speed limit is 65 miles per hour, which really means 75 miles per hour. And in Ohio, they have two lanes of traffic, and the speed limits are 55 miles per hour, which really means they're 50 miles per hour. In California, you lock up your home, bike, and your car. In Ohio, you could barge into, borrow, and use any of those pieces of equipment or luxuries as you please. I remember my first year in college, we were walking around. None of us had a car, um, but we wanted to go get pizza. And there was somebody on campus who just left their keys in their car and were like, let's use it. And so we went and got pizza. And it felt really weird, but we did it. Uh, in California, you dress for fashion. In Ohio, you dress for weather. In California, you go to the snow. In Ohio, the snow comes to you, right? In California, you, wor- you use words like dude and hipster. In Ohio, you use words like crick, which means creek, and y'all, which means you guys, right? <laughs> I never felt so much like a foreigner, just personally either, just beyond the geography of the state. Um, And though we lived in the same country, my peers in Ohio were amazed uh, at my being from California. They thought that was the coolest thing since sliced bread, seriously. They... uh, Uh, Their impression of me was that I would just go around and hang out with celebrities, that I would go to the beach every day, that I was like a professional surfer, and they soon find that none of those things were true of me. And my impression of Ohioans was that they probably just had a normal upbringing similar to my own, uh, just in a different part of the country, and none of that was true of them either. (laughs) They're weird people. Um... (laughs) I never owned a lethal weapon. Most of my friends, a lot of my friends, uh, got their first gun at the age of 12 in Ohio. I was like, what? You have a gun? They're like, yeah, I got lots of guns. 
I had neighbors uh, that lived next door to me in California, and, you know, we could see their house right there. And many of my friends in Ohio, they lived on farms. Like, that's a real thing. Like, that's not a stereotype. Like, that's real. Um, You know, I grew up in a desirable part of the country, and they grew up in Ohio, you know? So... But I just remember feeling like a foreigner that first year of college, um, and it kind of all came to a head. I remember one evening I was having dinner in the cafeteria, and I kind of began to look around a little bit and look for anybody in the cafeteria uh, who had any just sprinkle of ethnic diversity that was expressing itself in their physical appearance. And out of the about 550 or so people that were in the room, um, I was the only person who wasn't fully Anglo. And it felt so weird. I'm like, I'm half Anglo. Like, you are my people. And yet I recognize that I'm really different, that this is a really foreign place to me. And so I remember going home that first summer and, and sharing about how weird Ohio was. And my brothers were like, wow, Ohio sounds like an interesting world. And I was like, it is. And I began to tell them this story about the cafeteria, and they didn't quite seem to be amazed, or they didn't quite seem to think that that was a really strange experience. And I remember saying to them, y'all just don't understand. And they looked at me and they said, you are not a foreigner, you have become one of them, y'all. And I still say y'all all the time. You see, although I thought of myself and this place as something uh, that was, I was foreign to, that I was coming from the outside to, that world and that culture had begun to kind of seep a little bit into me. Um, in our series that we've been going through over the past few weeks, ISM, we've been examining and looking at various values and ideas and beliefs that emerge from the culture and the worldview uh, that we find ourselves in in the 21st century in, we- in the West. Uh, we've been comparing these cultural values and ideas or beliefs with those that emerge from the Christian worldview. And we, we need to think critically about how the cultural ideas and beliefs have begun to seep uh, inside of the thinking and the beliefs of those who claim to be following Jesus. Because the way that we think is incredibly important, right? This is why educational institutions are incredibly, incredibly important institutions in our society and culture, because we believe that the way that people think is important in this world. And that value is not lost in the Christian worldview at all. You can repeatedly see throughout the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament that that lack of knowledge, that lack of understanding is detrimental to living as the people of God, to living a life that is pleasing to God. And we see this in the Apostle Paul when he writes in Romans chapter 12, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect? And it's in response to this idea that we need to be mindful of the way that we think, that we've been testing, reflecting, and thinking about beliefs that emerge from the world around us, trying to measure their merit and their worth. And over the past few weeks, we've, been, we've looked at a couple of different isms. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, Pastor Danny preached on nationalism. And if you didn't hear that sermon, if you weren't here, 
Like, I hundred, like, encourage you to go onto our podcast and listen to that sermon. It was a tremendous, tremendous message about how Christians should be relating to the nation states that exist in the world today. And last week, Pastor James preached about consumerism. And this morning, we're going to focus our attention on another prominent, popular, and powerful ism, and that is relativism. Fun. <laughs> What is relativism, you might ask? Uh, Though relativism kind of comes in all shapes and sizes and packages, we might generally say that relativism is the belief that truth about our world, that truth about morality, are contextual. That is to say that something is true or false, good or evil, those claims about an action or an idea are completely dependent upon the situation in which that claim is being made. Uh, or to say it negatively, the relativism is the idea that there are no absolute truths. There are no ideas, there are no moral claims that are true in all places, in all times. It is all relative. Let me offer you a simple illustration to kind of communicate the point. Uh, how many of you guys loved the 80s? Anybody like 80s fans, music, dress? I got a picture here that I want you guys to check out. Yes, the 80s, the 80s. Some of you guys are looking at those pants and jackets, and it is nostalgia. Um, Right? In the 80s, people dressed funny uh, and weird, and they had crazy hairdos. If you just Google search, you know, 80s fashion or 80s hairdos, these crazy things pop up like mullets. Um, But... uh, in the 80s, uh, which is one of my favorite decades because it produced one of the uh, you know, great minds of our time. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> but one of my favorite things to do is to look back at old family albums and pictures, right? And to see um, and make fun of my parents for their various fashion, you know, what they thought was cool and what they thought was hip and I have these pictures of my dad like in the 90s where he has the huge glasses. My dad did the mustache thing, you know, like my dad did all of the crazy clothes. And it's fun to just kind of see. And I recognize that one day I'll have kids and they'll look back at my prom pictures and be like, why did you dress like that? And they'll look at our wedding like, why did you do your hair like that, right? It's just like a fun thing to do. But if you dress, put that picture back up. If you dress like this in the 80s, right? Uh, we might say, or many people would say, that, it, that it's true that you would have been fashionable then, right? And, but it is also true that if you dress like that today, you would be not fashionable, right? Is that the same exact pants, the same exact hairdo, the same exact everything in the 1980s was really cool and fashionable, and that was true. But it no longer is true that that is fashionable today, Right? You could take it off. Or let me, let me offer you like a moral example. This is a hypothetical situation. Let's say my wife gets dressed and she looks terrible. The clothes don't match. Her hair is disheveled. Makeup looks like a clown, whatever, right? And she comes to me. She's just a hot mess. And she asks me, how do I look, right? And there's a moral dilemma that I now find myself in. What is the morally right thing and wrong thing to say? To which some of you are thinking, Forget the right thing, do the smart thing, tell her she looks great, right? But, right, is that it all depends on the situation, my response. If she's going to a job interview and she looks like that, 
right? Don't I have some sort of obligation to inform her that maybe you should look a little bit more professional than that so that you might be able to receive the job that you're wanting? But if she's going to like an 80s, you know, karaoke night, like you're like, yeah, you look great, let's do it, right? Is that it all depends on the situation. It all depends on the context, right? And so depending on the context, we might say that this is fashionable and hip or not. We might say that it's good and morally right to tell my wife that she looks good or not. And it all depends on the context and the situation in which that emerges. See, this is the way that relativism teaches us to think about truth, about our world, and morality. Right? But let's take this maybe a little bit further, just one step further. During college, I worked as a valet at Disney's Grand California Hotel and Spa. Um, one of the reasons I absolutely love working at the valet uh, were the relationships that I had with my colleagues. One of the sweet perks of being a valet is that you work like 20% of the time when you're on the clock. The other 80%, you're just kind of standing there waiting for cars to come, you know? And so you have a lot of time to interact with your colleagues and your coworkers. And I quickly learned that, that the valets that I spent my time with during those years in college were incredibly different than most of the people in my life. You see, I'd grown up in the church. I went to private Christian schools my entire life. My parents were Christians. They tried to lead our family in that direction. Um, And so my community, by and large, were people of Christian faith. Uh, And yet my coworkers that I interacted with, none of them really had any sort of Christian upbringing or background, let alone belief. They would often refer to me. They thought I was so strange for being somebody who is so young thinking about pursuing ministry uh, that they would refer to me as the man of the cloth, like all the time. They're like, they're the man of the cloth. I'm like, hello. Um, and so we talked about everything at the valet. We talked about sports. We talked about politics, everything in between. And often we would talk about religion. And when I would share about my beliefs and my faith, there was always just open dialogue about that. They would listen to me I would listen to them. They had some interesting insights, some interesting critiques on the Christian faith that I had never really thought about that was really helpful for me to hear. Um, And if I ever uh, sort of inquired with them about, have you ever considered Christian faith, you know, or like pursuing Jesus? Did you ever, you know, just think that maybe this is something that's worth pursuing with my life? I would usually get this response. They would say something like, oh, no, no, no. I think that your faith is true for you but that's not my truth, or something along those lines. They might say, oh, well, that, well, that's really good for you, but that's not good for me. You see, beliefs about the world and how people ought to live are all up to each person's individual perspective when we are trying to see the world through the lens of relativism, right? Is that in this form, like truth about reality, morality, it's all up to each individual person to decide what is true, whether what they think is reasonable or what they feel is right in the world. And the primary issue with relativism is that it really is an untenable sort of position to maintain in life, both logically and practically. Uh, Logically, it doesn't make sense uh, because the first thing that you can say about relativism would be relativism is true. But the problem with that is that it's an absolute statement, right? That, that relativism, relativism is the belief that there are no absolutes, right? And so saying that relativism is true is an absolute belief, it would be like saying I'm a married bachelor, right? Like it just doesn't make logically any sense. 
uh, but it also fails practically. You see, most people who say that they're relativists don't actually live like they're relativists. People don't actually believe that there isn't absolute truth out there to be known or received. Final illustration or a couple illustrations for you to highlight the shaky nature of relativism and how it functions in the world. Um, 250 years ago, just think about history class, junior high, high school, wherever it was for you. People of dark skin were thought of very differently than they are today. Um, the science, the religion, the theology all kind of affirmed the idea that people of color were lesser, uh, not just in the physical sense or cultural sense, but they were, they were literally lesser of human beings than other people. And today, if you fast forward 250 years, uh, we call that racism, and we understand that to be a, a great injustice and, a, and an evil perspective by which we look at people, right? And I'm pretty sure everybody in this room and most people who, who might even say that truth is relative, morality is relative, would not affirm like, well, 250 years ago, that's what everybody thought. It was just part of the culture. That's what everybody was teaching. And so that was good for them. And that's like okay to, for them to affirm. But for us today, it doesn't work that way, right? Like nobody thinks that way. Is we look back 250 years at things that science, things that the church said about ethnic people, and we just cringe that those words or those ideas were ever popular in the world. Because what is true of ethnic people today was true of ethnic people 250 years ago, regardless of the perspective that people have regarding them. Um, in the world today, it is estimated, let's use a morality example, that there are anywhere from 21 to 36 million people enslaved in our world right now, this moment. When we were out, total side note, when we were at Elevate a few weekends ago, I discovered that Point Loma has a scholarship uh, where they give uh, students full ride for four years of college who have escaped slavery, which is like super cool. Um, but we hear this statistic about people being enslaved today, and I hope that for you it's a revelation of a horrifying reality that exists in the world. It is disgusting, it is wrong. And it is utterly evil to enslave another human being against their will. There's no other way to think about it. Yet 250 years ago, right, 200 years ago, we looked at slavery as if it was a wonderful thing, right? Slavery helped develop economies. Businesses and entire industries were built on the backs of slaves, right? There's a point in time in which the majority culture looked positively or at least indifferently at the slave trade. And yet I'm willing to guess the majority, I hope all people, would never utter the idea that slavery was okay and morally good then because of the context in which it found itself, and it is morally wrong today. You see, relativism does not allow us to practically live in the world because people don't actually believe that morality works in that way or truth works in that way, and yet relativism has a stronghold on the minds of many Americans today, which is just mind-blowing. In 2002, Barna uh, did a study on truth and morality of Americans, and they discovered that two-thirds of U.S. adults agree with this statement. Truth is always relative to the person and their situation. Truth 
is always relative to the person and their situation, 64%. And here's the scary thing. Our younger generations, the 18 to 35 categories, that number jumps to 75%. Three out of four 18 to 35-year-olds agree with the statement that truth is always relative to the person and their situation. In the same study, Barna discovered that adults, the most common basis for making moral decisions uh, in, for them in their lives was by whatever feels right or comfortable in a situation. The guiding principle for making moral decisions in the world today by most U.S. adults is whatever feels right or comfortable in a situation. And it would be easy for us to kind of roll our eyes, right? It's like, we're the church, we're Christians. How ridiculous, the world around us. But (laughs) y'all might be surprised that practicing Christians profess many of these same beliefs. In just last year, Barna did a study uh, with practicing Christians, and they discovered that 40% of Christians agree with this statement. Whatever is right for you and works best for your life is the only truth you can know. 40% of practicing Christians believe that whatever works best for you in your life is the only truth that you can know. 47% of Christians believe that a culture must determine what is acceptable morality. A society must determine what is acceptable morality. Half, one out of two Christians. 60% of Christians believe in an absolute moral truth, which means 40% do not. 40% of Christians surveyed do not believe in an absolute truth. That is mind-blowing to me. We look to the self We look to the culture around us to try and determine what is true and what is good. Is this a solid foundation in which we are supposed to be thinking about reality and morality? The philosopher uh, Blaise Pascal once wrote, It is in vain, O men, that you seek within yourselves the cure of all your miseries. All your insight only leads you to the knowledge that it is not in yourselves that you will discover the true and the good. I'm going to read that again because it's so good. It is in vain, O men, that you seek within yourselves the cure of all your miseries. All your insight only leads you to the knowledge that it is not in yourselves that you will discover the true and the good. How insightful, right, are those words today. You see, the truth about reality and morality must be grounded on something. And though we cannot kind of uh, what am I looking at? And though we, we often, and we're beginning, and the culture around us is beginning to look into themselves for uh, the truth about reality and morality, uh, they're right to search, how do I say this? They're right to search in a person, but they're wrong to search it within themselves. Is that truth about the world and truth about right living in the world can be found in a person, but only one person, that is the person of Jesus of Nazareth. You see, this is the the great claim that the Christian faith has long been proclaiming for centuries. That Jesus of Nazareth is something more than a wise teacher or a good person. But the Christian faith loudly proclaims that Jesus is the divine son of God. That he was crucified and bodily raised from the dead. 
and that it is because of those truths about him that we should be looking to him and in him for understanding of how we ought to live in the world today. And it's not just the, the church. It's not just the, the, the Christian faith that has declared this about Jesus. Jesus himself declares things about his identity that are just crazy to think about. Jesus himself assumed the authority to forgive all sins, not just the ones committed against him. Jesus claimed that he alone could give eternal life. Jesus claimed to have a truth that no one else has ever possessed or proclaimed. Jesus himself assumed that he had the authority to judge the world. Jesus himself claims to be perfectly sinless. Jesus himself stated that to see and know him is to see and know God. Jesus himself declared that to receive him is to receive God. It is this person that the Christian faith has long believed to be the way, the truth, and the life. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes this, A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him for a fool or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Every person has to decide to recognize Jesus to be the one who he claimed to be or reject Jesus as the one who he claimed to be. And this isn't a matter of personal opinion, right? Like, you, you don't get to just decide, like, well, it's good if Jesus is the Son of God to you, but he's not to me, right? Like, that sense of logic just doesn't work here. But if it is true that Jesus is who he said he is, then he must become the person in which we look to grasp a sense of how the world is, ought to be, and how we ought to live in it. If it is true that Jesus is who he said he is, then we m- must submit all of ourselves to his teaching and commit ourselves to follow him and only him. If it is true that Jesus is who he said he is, then we must surrender all of our lives before him and to no other. Either Jesus is the son of God or he isn't. (laughs) Either Jesus can forgive sins or he cannot. Either Jesus was raised from the dead or he wasn't, right? It's not a matter of opinion. If it isn't true, if Jesus isn't the Son of God, if he cannot forgive sin, if he was not raised from the dead, Christianity is nothing more than a mere hobby, and the church is nothing more than an old hobby shop. If Jesus isn't who he said he is, we are left searching for a foundation for truth about reality and morality, but this is the good news for us today. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus was crucified. Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. And if you've never heard that truth before about Jesus, I'm not just saying it because I want to believe it. There are strong reasons why I believe those things. And I would love to talk. I don't know why I'm getting emotional. I don't, it's so weird. Um, 
And I would love to talk to you about why it is that I maintain that truth in my life. And he is the one in whom truth and life can be found. Amen. Jesus is Lord, right, Michelle? Thank you. That's why I got my squad down here to support me when I cry. (laughs) Um, As illogical and untenable relativism appears to be, I think people generally cling to the idea of relativism um, to combat two other isms in our world. Judgmentalism, I know that's not a word, but judgmentalism and legalism. Uh, both of which Christians are popularly known to kind of <laughs> value. Um, you see the statement, um, that's true or good for you, but that's not true or good for me, I think is often a way of communicating the idea, I don't necessarily agree with you, so please don't judge me <laughs> and fr- force your beliefs upon me, right? Um, and ironically, I, I think that it's only by fully embracing Jesus of Nazareth as the true son of God, that we can entirely be free of judgmentalism and legalism. Uh, And I think uh, recognizing Jesus as the son of God um, does two things that I just want to wrap up here uh, and share with you this morning. Is I think living under the lordship of Jesus and recognizing him as who um, who he said he is frees us from being judgmental and calls us to be loving evangelists. Let me say that again, that living under the truth that Jesus is is Lord frees us from being judgmental and calls us to be loving evangelists. We are called to share the truth about Jesus. We are called to share the truth about the world in which we live. We are called to share the truth about how people ought to live in the world and not to shove it down people's throats, not to make judgments on their beliefs. That's not what Jesus did. When I was uh, in seminary several years ago, maybe five years ago, um, my mentor, uh, who's a really bright man, uh, had a couple of Mormons come to his door. And uh, he invited them back to his place later that night and invited me to come over and have a conversation with these two young men. And, and so they came over, and he was like... We, we were jokingly talking about, like, we're going to get him, right, or whatever. But that really wasn't the intention of, of the conversation. Was uh, We invited them over, and we had a conversation about what it was that they were trying to share with us. Like, why were they going around door to door to door to door for a couple years in their lives telling us about some ideas that they believe about the world and about reality, and so they began to, to just, you guys may have heard the spiel before if you've ever had these uh, guys come by your own homes. And, and so we just listened and, and we absorbed everything that it was that they were saying. And there was a certain point in the conversation in which my mentor just humbly and lovingly said to them, I perceive that you are two young men who are seeking truth. And believe that you have a truth to proclaim. I believe that I have a truth to proclaim as well. And I would love to just share a little bit about what it is that I believe that I've found and I've discovered in the world. And he began to share a little bit about the Christian faith and how it's kind of different from the Mormon faith. And and begin to explain why he believed the things that he believed and why he didn't believe the things that the Mormons believed. You see, so often, I love that moment because those moments like that I've had over and over and over with my mentor. 
that he was really lovingly and confidently proud of the truth that he's discovered in Jesus of Nazareth. So many people, we see like the Mormons, you know, guys walking around or coming to our doors and we cringe or we laugh or we talk about how annoying they are, right? And yet the call of Jesus is not to be judgmental about what it is that they're doing. It's not to be judgmental about the message that they have come to share with you. It's to lovingly share your faith with them, right? Because they are on a journey and trying to seek truth as well. Don't we have an obligation, if Jesus is Lord, to share that with the world around us? Jesus frees us from being judgmental and calls us to be loving evangelists. And the second thing and last thing is this. Jesus, living under the lordship of Jesus, frees us from being legalists and calls us to love him and our neighbors. Living under the lordship of Jesus frees us from being legalists and calls us to live, love him and our neighbors. Um, a couple of weeks ago at Elevate, our speaker shared about how often young people in the church perceive uh, Christian living as a list of do's and don'ts. Here are all the things that you have to do to be a Christian. Here's all the things that you shouldn't be doing if you're a Christian. And although we may not articulate it that directly, many of us uh, in this room, including myself, I find myself doing this at times, kind of operate within the Christian faith in such a manner. But here's the problem, um, is that, that Jesus doesn't call us to be legalists. Right? Jesus frees us from legalism. Um, religion, or the idea of religion, is the idea that I do blank in order for God to accept me. I do whatever command, I do whatever law, I do whatever rule that I'm told to do so that God will accept me. But what Jesus preaches and the message he proclaims is that God accepts you because of me and we choose to follow him because of that love and grace. It's a really big difference. But I see this all the time, both with Christians kind of living legalists themselves, is they constantly feel like, I have to achieve, I have to do good, I have to be a better person in order to earn God's love and grace, in order to earn God's acceptance in my life. But I also see us kind of pushing a legalistic agenda on the world around us, right? You have to live like this in order to be accepted by Jesus and be included in the church. There are certain behaviors that you have to, to not be doing anymore, certain relationships you can't have, certain feelings that you shouldn't be feeling in order to come to Jesus and follow him. But Jesus frees us from all of this because he accepts all people. His grace is offered indiscriminately to all, and even you sitting in here this morning. Um, I don't remember a lot of sermons growing up or messages uh, I've said this before, and it's kind of, so it's kind of funny to be up here thinking about that. But I remember, strangely enough, uh, a few sermons, and one of which was my first summer camp as a high school student, a ninth grader. And I remember we're sitting in this outdoor amphitheater, and I, I honestly don't really remember much. I just remember this single line that the speaker shared with us that evening. He said, Jesus doesn't clean his fish before he catches them. Jesus doesn't clean his fish before he catches them. I, that, that imagery and that idea has just like stuck with me for so long. What would it look like 
if the church stopped trying to clean fish that they didn't actually have, that the, Jesus hasn't actually caught yet, um, we could be free of our legalism and we could simply love God and love our neighbors regardless of how different they might be from us. Receive the truth that Jesus is who he said he is, that in him we can find a solid foundation for thinking about the world around us and how we ought to live in it. Father God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that Jesus is Lord. We thank you that Jesus is who he said he is, God. And we gather each week simply to submit ourselves again to his lordship in our lives. God, we offer all of ourselves to you. May may we be loving evangelists and loving neighbors in the world that we find ourselves in. Show us how we might better do that. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen.